0: Our God reigns. From Genesis through Revelation, the Bible truth holds clear. God has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Or does it? I mean, you know, imagine, just think for a moment, reflect, what an audacious, even offensive claim it is. To say something like Robert Browning said, and we'll come back to him later, God is in his heaven, and all's well with the world. Now, I want to take you to an image you've seen this week. It went viral on social media. Little Omran Dakhneesh. Five-year-old boy Born into civil war torn Syria, having known nothing but war, misery, pain, middle of the night this week, his house has blown up, and the emergency services rescues, rescue him from the rubble and leave him dusty, bloodied, dazed. Just for a moment in the ambulance while they went and rescued other people. Aleppo, Syria's second city. Omran Dakhneesh, Aleppo. Now what about Robert Browning? Now, don't worry if you're not immersed into Victorian romantic lyric poetry. I've got something for you in a moment. For the rest of us. Robert Browning, romantic lyric poet, writes a dramatic poem. And the character in that poem is a 14-year-old girl, Pippa. And Pippa is singing a song. Let me read it to you just this little bit. The years at the spring, days at the morn, mornings at seven, the hillsides dew-pearled, the larks on the wing, the snails on the thorn, God is in his heaven, all's right with the world. Which vision is correct? This is a story of a northern Italian girl who works in a factory, works in a mill, a, a, a silk mill, in the town of Asolo, northern Italy. Which vision of the world is correct? Omran's vision from Aleppo or Pippa's vision from Asolo? Which is right, Aleppo or Asolo? Well, we're going to see both as right, but before we go any further, um, when you take Robert Browning's words just a little bit out of context, you, you kind of think it's... Romantic, Victorian, escapist, naturalist poetry. When you read the whole story, you discover there's a depth to it. This young 14-year-old girl works extremely hard, very long hours, in the silk mill. She has one day off a year. And on this day off, according to the poem, she chooses to walk through the streets of Asolo, singing an encouraging song that others can see a vision of the world that brings God's goodness breaking into the darkness, as another poet said, the dark satanic mills of industrial revolution, you. (laughs) We ask ourselves the question, which, 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 which view is correct? Now, I promised you something, for those of you who may not be immersed in all the cultural Intricacies of Victorian poetry, this is especially for you. I see trees of green yeah. yeah. I see them bloom from the view. and I think to myself. What a wonderful world. <laughs> ah, that brought you alive. <laughs> so Louis Armstrong, is he saying something like Robert Browning is saying? Yeah. I say to myself, what a wonderful world, and we want to say yes, and we've actually already said yes. That's why it's very dangerous to worship God in public, because your words get quoted back to you. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, you can hear them tweet, tweet, tweet. When I look down from loft and mounty grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. I don't think any one of us wants to deny the fact that even though it's a broken world, it's still a beautiful world. We see something of the glory of God, but but we are not escapists. We don't pretend that the world is not broken and suffering. And while Omran's picture is by no means the most awful picture that has come out of this war-torn part of the world, it somehow's captured people's imagination. The world's focus has gone to the hundreds and thousands of people being killed and wounded, many of them women and children. So, which vision is correct, a solo or Aleppo? Well, they both are. They both are. God is both in charge, and we live in. A broken world. The verse I quoted earlier, Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Yes, our God does reign. Isaiah 52, verse 7, is another strong and powerful verse. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Beautiful feet bringing good news very often was a reference to a messenger who was carrying news of a great victory which was going to encourage a whole city or a nation. Who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good tidings, of glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, as I said, from Genesis through Revelation, the truth is is that God is a sovereign, ruling God. His kingdom is established and, and there is no threat to his rule. That's absolutely true. But this was particularly good news for those who first heard it, for whom it was first addressed. An historical situation in the history of God's dealings with his people, Israel was in captivity and this prophecy was speaking into that situation. And and God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to establish you again. I myself am going to show up. And other parts of the same section of the scripture says, say to Zion, behold your God, your God shall come. God is going to show up. God is going to take charge. Be encouraged. So, whatever this means for us today is whatever situation or circumstance you in, or you're in. And we need to remind ourselves of this because there is bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, and the Olympics. But anyway, very, very difficult times in which we live. But remember that God has not lost control. He's not lost his power. He hasn't abdicated his throne. His throne has not been usurped. Yes, there's rebellion against his rule, but our God still reigns. And at the heart of the Christian hope is this fact that we look forward to. One day, God will so intervene in the affairs of man, in the affairs of humanity, that he will reverse the curse and put to right everything that was wrong. And the Bible calls this judgment. Now, you know, when I said earlier, our God reigns, I immediately thought of all the people who would say, how dare you say that? How dare you say that God's in control? How dare you even think that God's in His heaven and anything could be possibly right with the world? We live in pain and misery and God is responsible. Because if God is a good God, why doesn't He sort it out? And we say, Amen. Would you agree with that as a statement? If God is a good God, He's gonna sort it out, is that right? And that's called the judgment of the nations of the world. When God returns to put things right, to deal with evil, to deal with sin, to overthrow sin and iniquity, and to judge every injustice and create a new heavens and a new earth where justice is in charge. And soon as we start talking like that, those same people say, don't talk to us about judgment. Well, if you want God to step in he, you've got to use the word judgment, and by the way, he's going to begin with you. So we look for that day. Peter talks about new heavens and a new earth. John, in the book of Revelation 21, says the day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more dying, no more crying, no, more, and everything old, everything will be made new. And we look for that, and we believe that, and we know that whatever satisfaction we may or may not receive on this earth, whatever recompense, whatever justice, whatever good stuff may ever come to us on this earth, it is not worth comparing with what is to come. So we are futurists. We are future-orientated people. We know that our hope is in him. But is that all there is to it? Evidently not. God is not a God just of tomorrow. He's a God of today. And what is He doing now? God is up to something. Yes, something very, very great. That was the message of Jesus, Mark One, verses fourteen to fifteen. And uh, um, you know, this 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 is absolutely crucial. It's in the beginning of the Gospel. It summarizes Jesus' message. And if we're ever going to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, we have to understand his opening statement. Mark's Gospel 14 to 15 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now this language, and we unpack it a little bit, is so familiar for us that as I read it to you, not a flicker of recognition comes over your face. And me too. Because we have to rediscover the kingdom. 2,000 years of Christian language has covered it up for us. We need to go back to the beginning and dig it out and understand just what a radical, outrageous claim this is. And I'll put it to you like this. It was as if Jesus was standing up in Galilee and saying, listen up everybody, God is now in charge. Listen up, he's in charge here. Something has happened. God's kingdom, God is now in charge over the earth. Not just heaven. He's established his throne in the heavens, yes, yes, yes. But Jesus said, pray like this, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. The whole story of God is about him reclaiming the earth. And bringing it back under his control. And that is what the kingdom of God is. God's in charge. Here on the earth. And of course in order to express this. He had to explode some myths some expectations which were human-based, unrealistic and well-meaning, but in many, many ways totally misguided. In order to come to that, uh, let me just draw your attention to an incident in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Joshua was about to go and conquer the land and, and he had an encounter with the angel of the Lord? And the angel of the Lord was like a mighty warrior. And... Joshua looked at him, terrified, and said, Are you for us? Or are you for the enemy? Are you on our side? Or are you on their side? And what did the angel say? Neither. Every good preacher will draw the lesson from this. The angel of the Lord was saying, I've not come to take sides. I've come to take over. I know we've just been singing, God is on our side. Yes, he is, but he's for us. But he's never on your side. Do you understand me? He's not there to say, what do you want? Let me fill it for you. And, And you see, the expectation of the Jewish nation had built up very much a human understanding of what they expected to happen. They expected that Messiah would come as a revolutionary to lead a rebellion against Rome And overthrow the yoke of Rome to the point that Israel, the Jewish people, would become a totally independent nation and usher in a golden age, such as David's kingdom would be back again. That's what they thought. And they had hopes about 100, 200 years before this, during the reign of a a nasty Syrian king. We're back in Syria. Don't tell me the Bible's out of date. And this Syrian king, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God, showing up. And this this man was an outrageous despot, totally anti-Semitic, totally anti-Jewish, and he overran the land, and he he was outrageous. Even to the point of polluting the Jewish temple by dedicating it to Zeus, and by offering profane sacrifices, historians say probably pig's blood. And there was such an outrage and a response that a man whose name was Judas Maccabeus translated Judas the Hammer. He says, I'm going to rise up, I'm going to hammer him. And there was a a beginning of a victory and he announced the kingdom of God. He announced the messianic rule and it lasted for a bit. There was going to be an initial victory, then a final victory. And the golden age of Messiah, the golden age of messianic freedom was going to happen. But it didn't. But one thing he did achieve, and this is very important for our story, he did manage to get to the temple and cleanse it as part of the messianic campaign. Does that remind you of anybody? So along comes Jesus, and and the, uh, the gospel writer is very clear, after John was put into prison. Now this was the end of the end of the preparation. Because we know in the very beginning when God created the world, He made a garden and that was the place of fellowship. was a holy temple. God's presence was there. Humanity was given this role of being made in the image of God to rule on behalf of God, God's vice regents, God's earth, earthly representatives, so His kingdom would be reflected in all of the world. And that project was spoiled. Because the communion was broken and sin entered the world and brokenness spread everywhere. And now God moves from his creation project to his kingdom project. His kingdom project is to restore the earth so that it would be finally the dwelling place of God. Heaven and earth would meet again. That's what it's all about. And so from Genesis 3 right the way to Revelation 22, it's the story of that restoration. It's the story of God's kingdom project and the Old Testament is all about preparation including the choosing of a nation and, and uh, being, setting up kings over that nation in a theocratic rule to be a kind of demonstration of the kind of things it would be like when God's in charge, but only as a preparation. And the final preparation was John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who prepared the way of the Lord. And as soon as John's time was up, Jesus steps into the place. So it goes from preparation to the revelation of God's kingdom. The gospel recorders say that Jesus' first words are the time is fulfilled. All those years of preparation were over and now God's in charge. Amen and amen. Amen. So he says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is, 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 is in charge. And everything that Jesus said and did from there onwards talks about what it means. And it's, a, it's a, an amazing story. I would love, oh, obviously we can't do it today, I would love to go through that and just look at how Jesus ministered. He wasn't just being happy and smiling, being nice to people. He was stirring things up. Let me give you one example. The place of the temple was supposed to be the place where God dwelt. And Jesus said, huh? Eh? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again. He said, don't go, look at that temple, it's made with hands. This now is the real temple. God is working in me. God is working through me. And when we look a little later, we can see that it's not just God working in Jesus and through Jesus, but it is God working as Jesus. God manifested in the flesh. My temple, meaning God has now come back. And he's living in me. I am the living embodiment of God himself. And the proof of that, that he is the living, breathing temple of God, the dwelling place of God, the habitation of God, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. What? No priest, no sacrifice, no going to the altar. No, no. Wherever Jesus was, the kingdom was. Wherever Jesus was, the power of God was. Wherever Jesus was, the presence of God was. Wherever Jesus was, the temple was. So wherever he was, he could pronounce forgiveness. You did not have to go to the temple to be forgiven. Come to me, Jesus said, and I dispensed you the goodness and the blessings of the kingdom of God. I mean, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And we know that when we see the kingdom work in the life of Jesus, there are some very obvious things and some things which are not so obvious. You remember, of course, that John the Baptist, after he was in prison, he was there in the depths of despair in the bottom of the dungeon. And he was saying, well, what, is that? what kind of Messiah is this? Did I get it wrong? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Yeah, that's all very well. But I was thinking, behold, the Lamb of God that sets us free. Behold, the Lamb of God that gets rid of Rome. Behold, the Lamb of God who's on our side. But God says, no, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I have come not to take sides, but to take over. And the kingdom would look strange in the beginning. Go send a message to Jesus and say to him, are you really the Messiah? Did I make a mistake? Should we look for somebody else? Jesus answers very, very clearly. He says, tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive the sight, the deaf ear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Meaning that where Jesus was, there was the kingdom. And the signs of the kingdom were very, very clear, prophesied in Isaiah. The lame shall walk, blind shall see. This was definitely Messiah. But the kingdom had come, first of all, in an unexpected form. The kingdom had come in a seed. And initially as a seed, quite literally, in the womb of Mary, a seed is planted, who is Christ the Lord. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Most High. And then he's told parables and stories to explain that the kingdom would come, first of all, in an advanced form which would not be open and ambiguous. It would not look like the decisive victory that it really was. It'll be a seed that will grow into a tree that will take over the whole earth. And believe me, friends, it is coming. I said, it is coming. We've got to get back to the point where we tingle with delight at the sound of the kingdom because we know exactly what it means. Hope today i will help you a little bit in that direction. By the way, it shouldn't have been such a surprise because there were, were examples of messianic movements that began with some initial victories and at one particular stage in history. They even minted coins of the kingdom. Year one, year two, year three, year four, it was over. But the idea was it starts with a small victory or something that gets things going and then it ends with a decisive victory. They should have understood that the kingdom didn't always have to come. It wasn't actually necessary that the kingdom should come immediately and externally. And Jesus says, no, it's a secret thing that's working in the hearts of men and women and it's bringing a change. And Jesus himself pointed to John the Baptist to explain that the kingdom was not going to come outwardly and externally, immediately, it was going to come through suffering, it was going to come through difficulties, it was going to come through humility, it was going to come through Jesus himself riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. It was going to come by Jesus wearing not a crown of gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns, the very opposite of the world's understanding of kingship but oh when he died on the cross yes he took all the sin and shame and evil upon himself and in doing that he went into the enemy's territory and the enemy's territory imploded from the inside out for the third day he was raised again from the dead triumphant and 40 days later he ascended to heaven to take place at the right hand of God in that place of authority that place of absolute exaltation so that now every knee shall bow every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so when he says so when he says listen up God's in control what he's saying is the kingdom is here God is now in charge now, you know, you're not really got it yet because of course God's in charge. Whoever said he wasn't in charge, but remember, we're not talking about heaven now, we're talking about the earth. We're talking about Aleppo. We're talking about a solo. We're talking about London. We're talking about Beirut. We're talking about the whole world when we say God's in charge, his kingdom has come, Jesus now has taken over. People, say, oh no, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual rule. I don't don't listen, of course it's spiritual. Spiritual means Holy Spirit stuff. Of course it's spiritual. But this is as political as you can be. This is like going to the world rulers and saying, you think you're in charge? Our God rules, He is Lord and one day all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be manifestly the kingdom of Christ and His God. It means that right now God's government has begun. Now remember this, it's not a worldly government, but it is an earthly government. Remember, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the radical idea. We think the kingdom is all about loving Jesus now, dying and going to be with him in heaven. Well, it includes that, but it's much, much more. (laughs) Nothing's the problem with heaven. It's not about getting the heaven out of here and getting into heaven. It is about bringing heaven down to the earth so God's dwelling place will be on this earth. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, not just what will it look like, when the kingdom fully comes, but what does it look like now? And when we grasp that, we'll understand several things. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world, else my servants would fight. So it's a kingdom that is not built on flesh and blood stuff, It's a kingdom that comes from heaven, but it is a kingdom that has come from heaven to the earth. It's not worldly in origin, but it is earthly and physical and real and brings transformation and brings change in your life, in your family, in your community, your place and domain of work. God is in charge and he wants to manifest it through your life. Okay. So what does it look like? When God's in charge. I already emphasized this point. Let me come back to it one more time before we move on. It is a present earthly reality. Not just a future heavenly reality. So we've got to expect visible transformation. We've got to be able to point to it and say, there is the kingdom of God. Now Jesus said, you won't say here or there is the kingdom of God, the kingdom is within you, but that's exactly the point. There is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of God. We're coming to that. It is an earthly present reality which has real effects on our environment and our life and our society our culture. Secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, it looks like a man. What does the kingdom look like? It looks like a man. Wow, it looks like Jesus. So when Jesus came and he says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is a reach out and grab me and you've got the kingdom in your hand. The kingdom is manifested in the person of Christ. We'll look at that maybe if we come back to this for a longer series, but just a one-off message today. But but wherever Jesus is, is the kingdom. He's the king. There's the kingdom. It looks like Jesus. How did Jesus act? That's the kingdom. What did Jesus say? That's the kingdom. What did Jesus do? That's the kingdom. What did he tell us to do? That's the kingdom. It looks like a man. It looks like Jesus. And this is very, very important. It's not a coincidence. If it were not for what I'm about to say, this is how it could have happened. This is not how it happened, but this is how it could have happened if it were not for this one thing I'm about to say. God could have said, oh, those people down there, look at them messing up everywhere. Oh, Gabriel, let's sort it. Let's sort them out. Done. Okay, what's for lunch? God could have done it without an intermediary. God could have done it his own way and just waved his hand over the place. The same fingers that created the universe could fix all of this. There's no doubt about that. But for one reason, God had already committed the kingdom into our hands. Human hands. You remember Genesis? Let us create them in our image, male and female, and made them rule. Have dominion. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God has given to us the role of being his vice regents, his parliamentary representatives, his representatives here on this earth. The kingdom is in our hands. And God isn't going to snatch it back and say, oh, you silly people, you've messed up. By man, the whole thing was lost. And by a man, the whole thing is restored. So the kingdom looks like a man, a human person. Surrendered to God, that's what the kingdom looks like. A human person doing the will of God, that's what the kingdom looks like. A human person crazily in love with Father God, that's what the kingdom looks like. And that kingdom call and commission has been placed back in our hands. The Son of Man... Jesus' favorite self-designation. The Son of Man is the representative human who receives the kingdom and he gives it to the rest of us. That's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. For on this earth you'd have to go to where Jesus is. That's where the kingdom is. If he's not here, he's over there. you got to go over there. He was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus was training his disciples, which is why we have a cell strategy and a vision in this church, so that we can do what Jesus did, that we can invest our time in one another, that we can grow to be like Jesus and equip one another to get out there and do the work of the kingdom. That is church, ladies and gentlemen. And Jesus said, right, these are the twelve. And then beyond that, and on the day of Pentecost, Jesus, having received the promise of the Father, poured out the Spirit of the kingdom upon all God's people so that now all of us, indwelt by Jesus himself, we are filled with the powers of the kingdom. And now wherever we go, the kingdom is. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Think about that. Wherever you go, the kingdom is. Not at the same level of Jesus, but as his delegated authorities on this planet. Wherever we go, he goes. Wherever we go, the spirit goes. And the influence of the kingdom flows out of our lives. That's how the kingdom comes through us. God's at work in us. So what does it look like? It looks like a man. Doing the will of God. It looks like a community of the Holy Spirit witnessing to the kingdom. And when we witness as witnesses, remember we're witnessing to the kingdom. Now, I know it's very good to say, you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'm going to witness. I'll talk to you about my testimony. Once I was blind and now I can see. Jesus washed my dirty heart clean. <laughs> That's good that's good, but that's not yet witnessing to the kingdom. How do you witness to the kingdom? You say listen up, God's in charge. You witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you say listen Aleppo, listen to this our God reigns he's in charge and he's going to have the final say and we will be there to demonstrate the kingdom of God. Witness to the kingdom. So that's what it looks like. How does it operate? Well we heard it Repent and believe. Or as I I put it, listen up, God's in charge now. God's in charge here. God's in charge of the earth. And if that's the case, you cannot leave your life the same. You can't, if you believe it, if you recognize that God is present on this planet by the Holy Spirit, that he sent Jesus as Messiah, you got to look at that the whole of your life in the light of that. If God is now in charge, where are you in relation to that kingdom? And he says, I want you to join in. I want to include you. I want you to receive the kingdom. You are included. Repent and believe. Repent here is not about beating yourself with a stick until you're black and blue and sorry enough that God will have to have mercy on you. Repent here means let go. Your whole life, lived to this point, is about your stuff, your direction, your ideas. Until you realize there's something better and greater to live for. The only kingdom ever worth living for is the kingdom of God. It says let go of that old stuff. Repent and believe. Receive the kingdom. Receive the kingdom. You are included. Then surrender to the kingdom. Because you are indwelt. Surrender to the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that the kingdom works on the inside, and it's not just about signing some certificate or formally saying, I accept the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ as Lord. That's a good start, but it's about inviting the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the kingdom, to take full control of your life. As you yield, you receive the kingdom, because you are included, you surrender to the kingdom, because you are indwelt. And then you witness to the kingdom, because you are involved. What does that mean? It means that God has never rescinded his decision to rule the earth through his people and we are called to express the kingdom and to influence our world starting with our own private world what's going on inside us and that is a pretty big universe And that's why in our cell groups, our cell meetings, we meet together so that we can talk to one another about the kingdom and encourage one another so that we grow, we are shaped, we are formed according to the values of the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom, and the ministry of the kingdom. And then together we represent the kingdom wherever we go. That's why the evangelistic cells are of no value to hold them in the church building, saying like Christians have said for generations, if you want it, come and get it. No, Jesus says, go and give it to them. That's why you need to have your evangelistic groups in your workplaces, in the marketplace, where people are, in your places of hospitality, entertainment, and even nourishment. So we are... Involved, we are indwelt and we are included in everything to do with the kingdom of God. Receive his gifts, forgiveness, restoration, hope, present power, change lives, all of this. And then we become agents of change. Big change good change, making our little bit of earth that much more like heaven than before. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Growing as Christian community to demonstrate the lifestyle of the kingdom that people can see in us, the kingdom of God, taking action so that we make a kingdom difference. I'm asking every person that is involved in any one of the areas of society which are covered by our giants, Media, arts, politics, economics, every area, medicine, health, every area which covers every single one of us, to get together, we're writing to you, get together and say what kind of kingdom difference are we going to make? Not just today, not just tomorrow, but in the months and years ahead. What are we going to do that's going to make our domain reflect more of heaven than before? So we say it's much, much more than dying and going to heaven. Of course we get that, but don't worry, we're gonna be straight back here. Heaven is a serious thing, but don't worry, it's not the end of the world. We come back. Our dwelling place is with God here on this earth. There will be no barrier between heaven and earth. Be like two houses. Semi-detached, attached in the middle. Right now the door is open. The time is coming when the wall is coming down. And you'll be able to walk from heaven and walk to earth. Heaven and earth. Not even a day trip. It'll be so like a marriage. God's dwelling place on the earth. And at that time when it's fully manifested, the kingdom of God will have so transformed everything. There'll be no more Aleppo's. Well, there might be. But the Aleppo of that day will be very different from today. There will be no bombs, there will be no bullets, there will be no false religion, there will be no false desires or any kind of politics of greed or self-interest. It will be the politics of God in a renewed universe.